So, so we are starting a series today for three weeks called How God Sees Women. And my talk is a partnership made in paradise. Also for the, tonight and the next two Sundays, we are doing Sunday evening events that we're opening to the city. We did a little bit of online advertising, and you're welcome to invite friends to it. Julie's speaking tonight about a place at the table. She's going to tell her journey into greater gender equality as inspired by Jesus in marriage and ministry, and also reflect on some of the ways that even soft patriarchy diminishes women. Next Sunday, I'm speaking about how Pastor Priscilla ends Christian patriarchy, and in the evening, um, the talk is... Uh, my pivotal aha moments in scripture that changed my mind. Then the final Sunday, the talk is mutual submission in the morning and the evening. We're going to bring it down to earth and reflect on how all of this impacts our marriages, the way we parent, the way we do church. Uh, So hope you keep coming. And then remember, come tonight also and be sure to invite people in the evenings. The reason we're doing this series, well, the first one is one of our values as a church is intergenerational and gender equality. It's actually two values squeezed into one. We didn't want to make it too long, so we like shoved it in. But that's the, the sixth value. And the scripture is Joel 2, which says, where God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people, your sons and daughters, that's intergenerational. Your old men will dream dreams, intergenerational. Your young men will see visions. In those days, I will pour out my spirit, even on men and women alike. So in our little value statement, we say, we invest in ministry to kids and teens and build relationships across generational lines. We encourage mutual submission in marriages and include women behind the pulpit and on the pastoral leadership team. Second reason we're doing this series is because the leadership team has been so insistent that we do it. I wrote a book by the same title. I promise it wasn't my idea. I thought, just read my book. Why would you, you know, no, no, we've got to do a series. And the reason is that when you actually hear the stories of various people in the leadership team, this has been a major milestone in their own journey with Christ. Um, Learning to see women like God sees women, whether you're a woman or whether you're a man, it radically changes your approach to partnering together with with the other gender and seeing yourself. There's also been many prophetic words over this particular community that'll have a huge influence in the wider church in the area of gender equality. And then the third reason is because uh, we want to bring a corrective to the teaching of complementarianism that is so rife in the wider church. And, uh, you know, all of us are online and we can hear sermons from anywhere. There are thousands of videos you could watch arguing for uh, complementarianism. We are not convinced that complementarianism is the correct interpretation of Scripture and want to bring a corrective word It's certainly in our community and make sure that we don't subscribe to this, what we see as an aberrant theology. Complementarianism says that although women are equal to men, they are under the authority of their husband and may not be senior leaders in the church and oftentimes neither teachers too. So my talk is a partnership made in paradise, a partnership made in paradise. Many of the complementarian books on the subject are are titled something like God's Good Design, referring back to Genesis 1 to 3, where the argument is made that before Adam and Eve even fell, Adam was the leader of Eve. So that male headship is in the home, in the church, and, and even in wider society. Though women are equal in dignity and worth, nevertheless, they need to submit to males in authority. The 
complementarian manifesto, which has been unbelievably successful in, in permeating the worldwide church, written in the late 80s by John Piper, uh, makes statements like, both Adam and Eve were created in God's image, equal before God as persons and distinct in their manhood and womanhood. Thumbs up to that. Distinctions in masculine and feminine roles are ordained by God as part of the created order and should find an echo in every heart. Not so sure. Adam's headship in marriage was established by God before the fall and was not a result of sin. Few of us would argue with the first statement about equal dignity between men and women. The question is whether we should challenge the complementarian statement that male-female authority submission is part of the pre-fallen creation. Because if, if it is, then it should be commended to all people, and it especially should be commanded of God's people. I've got limited time with you. I'm going to keep my message quick. I want to just pick out three verses, one from each chapter, Genesis 1. Another one from Genesis 2, another one from Genesis 3. Let's go to Genesis 1 firstly, verse 26 to 28. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. There are two ways that we bless the world. The one is to bring forth children, <laughs> and the other is to steward the earth. And uh, if you're single, you can steward the earth, and you can partner with other people who have, <laughs> who have had children in raising the next generation. This passage does not create two different sets of instructions for men and women. Not just men, but women too are given authority as God's vice regents, which is a, an aspect of our full humanity. It takes both men and women together to reflect the image of God. This is the blessing of an alliance between the sexes. In fact, God's idea to create a perfect union of man and woman comes as a surprise in the flow of the chapter. I mean, in the previous days of creation in, in Genesis one, God presses order into a chaotic world by separating the firmament, the waters and the earth. Even the, the stars mark out distinct times and the days and the years and the sun govern the day while the moon is the sentry of the night. Everything knows its place. But when it comes to the creation of male and female, God stops drawing boundaries and instead binds them together as full partners without the slightest hint of gender-based roles or hierarchy. God could have said to Adam, you subdue the earth, and to Eve, you raise children. Instead, he stresses their full collaboration as co-parents, co-priests, and co-rulers. In later history, we humans will appoint a select few kings and queens, but God's designation for every person in creation, every man, every woman, is to be a king and a queen. I mean, this is so radical if you go back to when this was written, you know, a millennium before the coming of Christ, uh, written to the ancient Near East where patriarchy was so pervasive. The assumption was that men were in charge of women. In fact, if you went to a neighboring tribe, to the Israelites, to the Mesopotamians, and you pulled out their origin scriptures, uh, they, it tells the story of this goddess Tiamat who uh, meets the god um, Marduk, 
Marduk rips Tiamat to pieces, literally destroys her, violently breaks it apart, and then from her broken body, uh, her broken body becomes the earth. The gender-based violence is built into the origin myth of a neighboring religion. How radically different is this account of men and women in equality? must have been a complete shock to anyone who was in the ancient Near East. That's Genesis chapter 1. Let's go to Genesis chapter 2. It's all very good so far, says the complementarian, uh, having heard what we've just said about Genesis 1. Wait until we get into chapter 2 and 3, the second account of creation. Now, in the last many decades, complementarians have built up quite a list of arguments for Adam's headship over Eve before the fall. I know the power of this list. Uh, Years ago, uh, in a previous church, I was teaching on it, and uh, then very uh, popular uh, Mark Driscoll, pastor, theologian, megachurch preacher, was basically reviving, uh, you know, complementarianism and masculinity and hybridizing it with Christianity to great numerical effect in the city of Seattle. And he did a teaching on this, and he listed seven or eight evidences from the text that Adam was in charge of Eve. I was so dazzled by this, I pulled it into my sermon. As a Bible teacher looking back who claims to teach the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, I'm a little embarrassed. I think I was taken in without actually evaluating these arguments. I have repented and written a book to describe this repentance. Uh, (laughs) Five main arguments. I really don't have the time to go into them. I can recommend either my book or my friend Andrew Bartlett. He's written a book called Men and Women in Christ, which is stronger than my book in some places. And uh, five arguments, and there are more, but these are the five main ones. Adam was formed first, then Eve. But that's to show Adam his need for a partner. Another argument, women was made from man and for man. Yes, that means her identity and purpose are wrapped up in him. But as much as his purpose and identity is now wrapped up in her. Or argument three, you shall be called women. Adam, uh, you know, describes who she is. Does this mean that he's in charge of her? Well, just a few chapters later, you've got Hagar, a servant girl, naming God. So naming someone uh, and describing its essence is not necessarily a description of equality. Argument four, uh, God comes after the fall and says, where are you? To Adam, yes, but that's because of the st- in the story, God shows genuine curiosity. He's on a fact-finding mission. He asks one question, another question, another question. Of course, God knows everything, but in the story... God is, is presenting himself as a person in relationship with us. And when you're in relationship, you ask questions with interest and curiosity. But the biggest argument that comes uh, that complementarians make is that Eve is Adam's helper. And I want to speak about that. Genesis 2 verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. A few weeks ago, I was reading this passage to Finn and Ivy. And afterwards, Finn says, hey, Dad, you know you wrote that book about patriarchy? (laughs) My kids know that word. He goes, this supports patriarchy. That was his immediate observation. It sounds like, you know, she's helping him. This verse is the leading argument complementarians give for arguing that women are meant to be under male leadership as part of God's good and original design. The Danvers statement makes 10 doctrinal statements about the role of men and women and uses this singular verse, Genesis 2 verse 18, as a proof text for no less than five of the statements. 
John Piper, who wrote the Danvers Statement, defines, he says this, God teaches us that the woman is a man's helper in the sense of a loyal and suitable assistant in the life of the garden. George Knight, who is actually the true founder of complementarianism, he wrote his book in 1977 and introduced a whole bunch of novel arguments that John Piper and Wayne Grudem later pulled together in their repackaging. But George Knight says, it is simply proper to affirm that if one human being is created to be the helper for another human being, the one who receives such help has a certain authority over the one who is his helper. Are George Knight and John Piper right to conclude this? Of course, a helper can be an inferior, but they can also be an equal or even a superior. I mean, where would children be without the help of their mothers? And where would learners be without the help of their teachers? But the word translated helper is in Hebrew, ezer, is used predominantly in the Bible for God helping his people. It's used 19 times in the Old Testament. Of the 19 occurrences of Ezer in the Old Testament outside of Genesis 2, it is used 16 times of God in his relationship to Israel as its helper. The other three instances describe one person or group of people giving military support to another group that needs their help. In 18 of the 19 instances, the one being helped is not the leader of the helper. Eight of these uses... Uh, The helper is a savior, a protector, or rescuer. In the remaining occurrences, the nature of the help is an offering of strength, often of a military nature. So to ease someone is to make up what is lacking in them by offering one strength and intervention. In other words, the English word helper is hopelessly inadequate for the task of conveying the true meaning of the word easer. In our day, the idea of helper usually suggests a less qualified subordinate, like uh, an electrician's apprentice who hands her the proper screwdriver. She could probably do it on her own, but having someone to help with the smaller tasks is beneficial. No. Either should be translated strong helper or better yet partner, as many translations do, such as the REB, NAB, NRSV, and CEV. In what way then does Eve partner with Adam as his strong helper? Well, she helps him, number one, by rescuing him from his aloneness. She is his companion. She helps him by reflecting God to the world and populating and Edenizing the planet. And she helps Adam in the task given to him of caring for the gardener. In essence, women are not created to serve men, but to serve alongside men. If there's any doubt, just consider the word translated suitable, suitable helper. The Hebrew word is konegdo. She is not merely his ezer, she is, is his ezer konegno, konegdo. What does this word mean? It means like opposite him. Male and female are like two pieces of a puzzle that fit together, says Kathy Keller. Because they are not exactly alike nor randomly different, but they are differentiated each from each other, that they can create a complete whole. In other words, she is his perfect match, an indispensable partner and ally. What men lack, the woman possesses and supplies. This relationship between the first man and woman is defined by mutual support, mutual appreciation, the sharing of one's strength to complement the other, and of recognition of the same and the different in one's closest friend. God knew that it was not good for us sons, 
brothers, husbands, and friends to be alone. So he gave us our best allies by gifting us with daughters, sisters, wives, female friends, female colleagues. No longer left to do the work of God alone in our home, our church, our world. Men like me can now happily, humbly, and gratefully stand alongside our partners and fellow warriors. See, in Genesis chapter 2, the movement is not from Adam as superior to Eve as inferior, or from Adam's leadership to Eve's submission, but from incomplete Adam to complete Adam with Eve by his side. Woman is created as the climax, the culmination of the story, and as Adam's full equal. And consider the punchline at the end of Genesis chapter 2. We know it's the punchline because it says the whole story, and then it says, that is why. Now, if you read it, Genesis chapter 2, the complementarian way, then you would assume the punchline would be, that is why a man is in charge of his wife. But no, the punchline given in Genesis 2 is, that is why a man is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. The, the words united and one flesh speak of, let me get this word right, reciprocity and completeness, not rule or captaincy. How are you guys doing out there? Okay, let's go to the third verse, Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So juice is still dripping from Adam and Eve's chins. God addresses the serpent, the woman, and the man. He warns them about and prepares them for the dire consequences of their actions. To the woman, he says, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. What exactly is happening here? Complementarian scholars say that because of the fall, the man's pre-fall benevolent rule, so in other words, he used to be a, a really good leader of his wife, because of the fall, that pre-fall benevolent rule transforms into a tyrannical expression of this rule. In this view, the word rule here, the Hebrew word there is mashal, means oppressive rule. Instead of providing the godly leadership that Adam used to for Eve, he will now dominate her. What was once good, his loving leadership of her has turned into something brutal and exploitative. But is that really what God is saying? Is that really what Genesis chapter 3 verse 16 is saying? No. What is clearly communicated is that Adam, as a result of the fall, will now assume leadership over Eve. And by extrapolation, men will now assume leadership over women. In other words, patriarchy has just been born because of the fall. Patriarchy can be used as a bit of a slur, and I don't mean it in that sense. The Oxford definition of patriarchy is any social organization where men have predominant power. The Hebrew word mashal does not, as complementarian scholars argue, mean oppress. Rather, it means reign, rule, govern, master, or lead. We know this because it's used 81 times in the Old Testament, and each time it simply means leadership or rule. For example, in Genesis chapter 1, it says the sun governs the day. The word govern there is mashal. And then in Genesis chapter 1, it speaks about how Adam and Eve will rule the earth and rule the rest of creation. Again, the word is Michel, not oppress. The sun is not oppressing the day. Adam and Eve are not oppressing creation. 
both of the major biblical Hebrew dictionaries that analyze every Old Testament instance of the word, list not a single negative meaning for it. Unless it's connected to a qualifying term such as harsh or brutal, its core meaning does not include oppression or tyranny. The sheer fact that the relationship between men and women has, as a result of the fall, become unequal and power-based is horrible enough in itself. And in the two verses that follow, the consequence Adam must face is that the very ground from which he was originally taken will now only produce food at the cost of his thorn-pricked blood and the sweat of his brow. Taken side by side, even Adam's consequences are parallel. Adam will now be subject to his source, the ground, while Eve will now be subject to her source, Adam, where she was taken from his side. This is the true genesis of patriarchy, a disastrous default setting that plays out in every fallen society in which the man is assumed to be the master of the woman. See, the previous use of Michelle in Genesis showed that if it is God's ideal that the man rules alongside the woman. How dark then that in fallen creation, the man now rules over the woman. What does it mean that her desire, the Hebrew word is T-E-S-H-U-Q-A-H. I actually don't know how to pronounce it, so I'm not going to make it up. Teshuka. What does it mean that her teshuka, her desire, I did pronounce it, eh, will be for her husband? Well, there's three strong contenders that, that I think should be considered. I'll list them, in my opinion, from the weakest to the strongest. Firstly, it could mean servile desire. This view, put forward by the 1500s reformer John Calvin, says that sin makes her backboneless, completely surrendered to her husband's every wish, whim, and will. Instead of being his helper, she's reduced to being his slave. As this view goes, it gives explanation to women who are voiceless pushovers to the men in their world. There are certain cultures that would make that seem the right interpretation. Where women are brutalized and just utterly broken down. So it doesn't mean servile desire. Your servile desire will be for your husband. Uh, I think uh, the next view is more probable. It means exaggerated desire. We know this because Song of Songs uses the exact same word, teshuka, uh, the word desire, to describe sexual desire between lovers. This view sees a metaphoric version of sexual desire in a morbid yearning for her husband's company, closeness, and affirmation. Like the Disney princess who waits to be rescued by her heart's true love, this view suggests that this is why a woman so often socially enmeshes herself to a man, idolatrously finding her primary identity in his rather than God's acceptance and arms. Doesn't mean that used to have a, an ordinary, healthy desire for your husband, but now it's an exaggerated desire. Personally, I'm most convinced by this one. It means God-given desire. God-given desire. Your God-given desire, you will still have your God-given desire for your husband, but he will now rule over you. This view sees Eve's desire for her man not as sinful, but as natural. See, the immediate context of the judgments in verses 16 to 19 suggests it is a natural desire 
but now it's a frustrated natural desire. The woman brings children into the world, something natural, but because of the fall, she now experiences terrible pain. Similarly, the man desires to draw food from the soil, something natural, but now the soil obstructs him. And finally, the man whose life is sustained by the land will eventually be swallowed up in, in death as he returns to its dust. See, in each of these other judgments, a God-given desire has been derailed. Along the same lines as the other judgments then, her desire for her husband as her equal partner is natural. But unfortunately, it's thwarted by his desire to rule her. Complementarians reject all three views and say it means rebellious desire. Your rebellious desire will be for your husband. By this interpretation... She resists or seeks to overthrow her husband's leadership role. He tries to dominate her, and she responds in kind. This is the standard complementarian interpretation, says Wayne Grudem. He says, the distortion was that Eve would now rebel against her husband's authority. She has an inward urging and impulse to oppose Adam, to resist Adam's leadership. Her impulse, desire, and will are set against her husband. With Wayne Grudem as a member of its translation committee, it's no surprise then that the ESV translates it in a way that no other translation has ever translated it. Your desire will be contrary to your husband. But this interpretation or this way of reading it is wrong for three reasons. Number one, there's no reason to think that before the fall, Adam was Eve's rightful leader. Number two, the word desire, teshuka, does not mean contrary desire as in the ESV. In fact, it doesn't mean desire to control, as in the New Living Translation. Your desire, you will have a desire to control your husband. It simply means desire for, as in most translations. The minority of translators read ideas into the word that go back to a 1975 theological article uh, entitled, What is Woman's Desire? In it, the author notes that the same rare Hebrew word for desire, teshuka, in Genesis 3 verse 16, reappears in Genesis 4 verse 7, where Cain is told that sin, like a wild animal, is crouching at the door and desires him, teshukas him. So in other words, the article wrongly concludes that the word in Genesis 3 verse 16 must mean desire to control. Because in Genesis 4 verse 7, there is an animal who desires to control you, Cain in that particular situation. But here's the problem. It doesn't mean desire to control in Genesis chapter 4 verse 7 because it's natural, not rebellious or contrary for a wild animal to desire its prey. The third problem with this rebellious desire reading is that it is subtly pernicious. It suggests that the reason poor Adam has to exert leadership over Eve is because she keeps picking a fight with him. Yes, his rule may be tyrannical, but by this view, it's at least understandable. I mean, what should one do with an insubordinate subordinate? And this is one of the tragic things about complementarianism. It has an inbuilt gaslighting feature. So that a woman who's been in a complementarian church for many decades and begins to feel that she's like a, a plant planted in a small pot plant while men get a plant in a much bigger pot plant. And they go, hang on, this doesn't feel right. And the default response is, 
you're struggling to accept your place. And the fact that you're pushing back says something about your sinful nature as opposed to your intelligence. No, the only contrariness in the text exists in the man towards the woman. In the same way that birth pains are contrary to her devotion to, br- to bring her beloved children into the world, so the man's self-asserting role as her master is contrary to her desire for him as her lover and equal partner. The pain in the latter case results not from her birth pangs, but his imposed domination. I mean, isn't this the real tragedy of the power of sin in male-female relations? There's been a terrible reversal of the beauty of Adam and Eve's first meeting in Genesis 2. See, once the man had received the woman with only delight as his counterpart and perfect match, now he sees her as his inferior. Hey, one last question. Genesis 3 verse 16, your desire for your, will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. Is this a curse? Is it a prescription or is it a description? It's not a curse. The snake and the ground are explicitly cursed because of humanity's sin, but the man and the woman are not. It's also not a prescription. God is certainly not commanding men to oppress women or women to have pain in childbirth. Rather, it's a description, a dire prediction. As a result of the breakdown in relationship between humanity and God in the garden, this is one specific distortion that will become normative in human relations. As terrible as the enmity between the genders is, it can and must be resisted. One-upmanship, domination, crushing inferiority, toxic superiority and idolatry were never meant to exist in the relationship between men and women. We should do what we can to correct it every bit as much as we seek to make the birthing of children less dangerous and painful and the way we fertilize and kill weeds and thorns when we farm the land. But ultimately, it will require the seed of Eve to put to death the age-old enmity between the genders. Genesis 3 verse 15, the first declaration of the gospel, God announces to to, um, Satan that, Her descendant will take on your descendant. You will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. A reference to the cross, where it seems that Jesus is destroyed, but the resurrection brings him back. It turns out that his wound was serious but not fatal. In contrast, Satan will be ultimately destroyed by the work of Jesus Christ. I can vividly recall the night I finally saw the actual teaching of Genesis chapter 2. I'd been so sure that male leadership existed in the unfallen garden, but was for the first time open to at least hearing why this might not be the case. I was writing part of a church research paper on the subject, and I set out to create a table with arguments for and against. I was completely unprepared for what happened next. As I reflected on each argument, The dawning realization began to take shape, and I exclaimed out loud, Oh my goodness, it's not here. Adam, Eve is Adam's equal in every way. At which point my wife walked past me. She was a little bewildered by the sudden outburst. I wanted to explain to her what I was experiencing, what what I'd just then seen in the scriptures. But before words could come out of my mouth, tears rolled down my cheeks. Was standing in front of me was someone I'd seen countless times. And yet was seeing as if for the first time, 
You are my easy connecto, my strong helper and perfect match. You are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, I said to her. You are strong where I am weak. You see a terrible blot of misunderstanding about God's ideal, now removed from my mind's eye. I glimpsed my wife as God must see her. This is the effect of the gospel of Jesus. He is the seed, the descendant that ends the enmity. Jesus comes as the new Adam. Last week, we looked at John chapter 20, Easter Sunday, and Jesus rises from the dead, and the very first person he meets is Mary Magdalene. I just met a lady here this morning who's Magdalena. Welcome. What's the first word to come out of the risen Lord's mouth? It's the word women. Don't miss that. John's gospel tells us that Jesus was raised on the first day, a reference to new creation. And as we read John 20, we're reminded of Adam, who awakened from his deep garden sleep to immediately find Eve, whom he calls woman. And then he names her mother of the living. And so Mary Magdalene, in this moment of deja vu, represents all women in the era of new creation who are to be celebrated for their capacity to carry the message that Jesus is alive, the message that brings life to others. And just like that, the resurrection of Jesus, a whole new world breaks into the midst of this old and broken one, bringing with it the glorious possibility of women standing shoulder to shoulder beside men in the front lines of the mission of God. The resurrected Jesus not only gives women the the first crucial ministry in the new epoch of resurrection reality, he honors them with a new level of equality and potential ministry impact. John Stott, the theologian, says, the elevation of women to a ministerial role is a a sign of the inbreaking kingdom, demonstrating that the old fallen order has ceased and a new set of relationships has begun. Let's pray. Let's pray. Can we stand up? Jen? Come in. You pray for us. I know you're not prepared, but maybe you'll, you'll be fresh, Spen. Eh? I'm just overwhelmed. <laughs> I'm overwhelmed. Jesus. Oh, Jesus. Oh, just open your hearts to Jesus. I just, as Taryn was speaking, I just felt the Lord saying to the people in this room, just stay close to me. Just stay close to me. Just look to my face. It felt like I could see these questions like whizzing around and then Taryn would like shoot one down and or there'd be another whole basket opened. And it was just, God was just saying, just stay close to me. Just turn your eyes on me. He's not a God of fear. But he does invite the wrestle. And he does invite the rumble. And he is unafraid of your questions. This is such good news. Jesus, this message this morning is such good news. Thank you. Thank you that you created us equal. Thank you that this matters because this is not just half your church, this is half of you. And what matters to you matters to us.
thank you, Jesus, that this is a kingdom issue. And I'll say this again and again, but this is a kingdom issue. And we are here with the great privilege of bringing kingdom to earth. Yes, I just felt this morning to open your, your hands before God and just invite Him into places where you have felt less than as a man or a woman. Where you have felt like um, you've been too much when you've walked in the room. The Lord is putting that one to bed today. He is saying you are not too much. You are not too much. You are just who I created you to be. Thank you, Jesus. He has given us a mantle. He has given us a mantle. And we are going to take this mantle. And we are going to run with it. Because there are kings and there are queens in this room. in a hurry here this morning we are going to sing a song together and if you feel like you would love prayer you would love the Lord to just continue what he has started in you this morning you just actually want to sit in your chair and just have another moment um, this is this is for you but we would love to pray for you and if you'd love some prayer please just feel free to come up to the front here stick your hand up right where you are Sometimes once you've been holding your fists like that for so long and so tightly, it, it actually feels sore to let go. Um, when you stretch your fingers out, it feels a bit unnatural and you feel like, oh, maybe I should just keep it like this. Um, and just with that picture of, of having our hands open to God, um, sometimes it, if, if you haven't done that for a long time, it feels really unnatural and it, it feels a bit like, ow, I don't know if my hands are made to do that. Um, I just want to encourage you to, yeah, just to, just to push through that that vulnerability with God, um, and, and just move move your fingers again metaphorically, um, yeah, and, and let Him bring your hand back to its full movement. is um, 
place at the table. And uh, the table mountain next to us. I always look at that. Look at Psalm 23. Prepares a table for me. This is a table where there is a place for you. Young and old. Men and women. Here. You have something to say, you have something to contribute. delighted that you broke something open for women in your first coming <laughs> on that resurrection Sunday we're so delighted for your work in the world, come and work in our community and make us a signpost of your kingdom in the city of Cape Town we pray this in Jesus wonderful, holy awesome name, Amen